What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. We have a cool episode today. Um, I often do Q and A's on my Instagram, but I, uh, it's nice to do an extended talk on the podcast. Therefore, I can just rant without anyone telling me to shut up on my Instagram. You know how annoying it is when someone's got a thousand little dots at the top of their screen and you just don't want to hear them talk. Well, guess what? You can come hear me talk on the podcast. So. I asked for loads and loads of questions for you guys uh, onto my Instagram and I just kind of summarized them all and put them into a list. I am now going to talk through them for the next however long and I, and I hope to bring you some more value across these. And if there's any topics that I want to talk off them, then I shall do. Um, but for right now, I'm going to take a sip on my 3D energy drink as always. Today we've got the red one. Um, which is not my favorite one. It's like Dr. Pepper. I'm not a big fan of Dr. Pepper, to be honest, but it is what it is. We beggars can't be choosers, can we? Um, so first question, how do I work up to my top sets, my top weights? I get this question a lot. Do you count your, your warming up sets? Do you count the sets? But before I don't, I just go through the motions after I've done my warm ups and my priming. Um, I'm fairly ready to go. I literally just want to acclimatize my muscles to the the progressively heavier weight. So let's take a let's take a hack squat for example. Let's say my top set on on a hack squat is five plates. So I'm going to stick one plate on each side. I'm going to do three or four reps. I'm going to stick two plates on, three plates on, four plates on, and just do two or three reps so I can feel the weight. And those reps will progressively get less and less to maybe just one or two before my top set. I'll then probably do one acclimatization set just before my top set. Let's say my top set's five plates. I'll be doing like four and a half plates for like a single, just so, just so I know if it's on. Because you know you get those days where, you, where you're warming up and you think, Damn, I feel good. That's that that is the purpose of these warm-up sets is to see if I feel good or not. And then you can assess where after you've got the experience in the gym, you can kind of assess where you're gonna fall. You know, like if you're always if you've been warming up for that hack squat for the past fucking three months, like I have, you know when you're feeling good and you know when you're feeling bad, and you know whether you're gonna get a two, three, four rep PB or whether you're just gonna be retaining. So it gives you a little bit more information as to what you can do in your set, and it's a nice little technique. It's not to acu- it's not to accumulate any volume. You're not going to get much hypertrophic stimulus out of it because we know we need that minimum intensity to kind of elicit that hypertrophic stimulus. But it it, it does help know where you're going to fall on that top set. So. That is how I work up to my top sets. Do I do any priming before I train? I, I just touched on this. Priming is, is, is a great tool to use to not only forge neurological connection to your muscles um, and get a pump and get the, the, the muscle connection firing. It also reduces injury risk by having some blood in the muscle, having some fluid in the muscle around the joints. The joints are warmed up um, and they are moving, quote unquote, um, which is great and, and it is perfect for, for injury prevention, but specifically priming, like priming can, can actually improve your active range of motion. So if we were to take the definition of active range of motion is essentially how far can you move in a movement without any weight? For example, if I lie you down on a bench press without the bar, how far are your hands coming down without you actually forcing them down you know and that is what we call an active range of motion that is what we call where we're actually your range of motion should be as soon as we push past that we go into a passive range of motion when we go into a passive range of motion we start to offload onto passive tissues like tendons and ligaments and you can get a lot of passive strength from those which is why actually sometimes you'll see when people bounce they can get a lot more weight up because there's a lot of stored tension in those passive tissues but guess what we're not trying to fucking grow our tendons and ligaments we're trying to grow our muscles which is why we we control it and stay within our active range of motion but priming can improve the active range of motion so for example if you are in um let's for example let's let's just use a bench press as an example you know priming for me in a bench press would literally be you could get onto a a fly machine you could do some 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 humorous abduction so it would be bringing your humerus across to the side 
in order for you to um, to, to, to move that peck across. In doing that, you will you will inevitably increase the elasticity in the muscles. Therefore, when you next slide back down the bench press without a weight and you come back down, you'll find that your hands come a little bit lower. So first of all, assess your range of motion, your active range of motion. And then from there, you can assess if you can get any more out of it through some priming. And then once you've primed, um, the same thing would, would be similar for like a, like a squat or something, you know, you could, you could prime your, your hips a little bit better. You can pull your glutes out and you can, you know, do some banded work to kind of fire your glutes off and, and see if you could get a little bit more range of motion out. Um, but again, you, you wouldn't be pushing past that passive range of motion with the weight on there. So always be careful of that. Um, so yeah, I prime every single session, um, pull downs, leg extensions, flies, things like that, just to get a neurological connection drive blood into the tissue for safety but then also improve my active range of motion which inevitably increases my range of motion which increases my hypertrophic response so there's a lot of thought into training it's not just go in and pick up a dumbbell and start lifting you've got to get yourself ready first you know you wouldn't run a marathon just by turning up and going you have to warm up build your heart rate up you know all that kind of stuff so yeah i think you can definitely prime before every single session um, and, and look to improve that range of motion. What is the main difference between JP's, Jordan Peters, and Cal's coaching style? Um, very, very different, in fact. I, th I think the... I think Callum is a lot more hands-on. There's a lot more information given, a lot more reasoning behind the decisions made. I think one, because I probe a lot more and I was very, very intimidated by JP back in the day. I think less so now, I'll just ask him now. But back in the day, I was still young. I was still learning everything I needed to do. And I just, he said I did. You know, but now you know. I'll ask a question. How come we made this decision and that decision? And I'll get a good full feedback from Cal on that. Um, there's a lot more of the little things that JP doesn't track. So JP wouldn't get me to track heart rate, blood pressure, heart rate variability, blood glucose. Now, inevitably, these things are less apparent when I'm natural. You don't necessarily need to track them as regimented when you're natural. You still should still definitely still track them all, um, but less so when you're natural. And I was natural back then. And really natural bodybuilding can come down to like eating and training, really. And eating, training, and recovery. Very, very similar to, to steroids as well, but you just got the steroids in there. Um, but uh, just a lot more hands-on approach, a lot more in-depth, uh, a lot more reasoning behind decisions rather than let's just add more food to put more weight on. Um, and that's, that's, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Like the, 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 the training style is very, very similar. Callum's actually coached by JP. So you can imagine everything is very, very similar. Everything is probably pretty similar to what it would be on both ends, but I just get a lot more information out of Callum. That's, that's pretty much it. Um, fats low on a prep. Um, why would you do it? And will it fuck the natties? So obviously I put my, I put my macros up on, on my story the other day and Without counting my trace macros, it ended up at like 35, 40, 40 fat or whatever. So it was quite low quotation facts fat. And a lot of people say, oh, aren't you going to hormonally compromise yourself? But, 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 well, let's, for me, I'm on steroids. My hormones are absolutely fine. I put them exactly where I want them to be, which is, you know, I take blood tests and I can move them to where I want them to be. Um, but for natural people, while fats are huge, um, especially cholesterol in, in building testosterone, like t testosterone is, 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 a, is a derivative of cholesterol. So if you were to take away all your cholesterol or your fat, you are inevitably taking away your testosterone. However, when you get that lean on a competition prep, regardless of the amount of fat that you eat, you are hormonally compromised. So it doesn't really matter that you are looking to pull down fats and the reason why we would pull down fats is to prioritize carbohydrates now the reason why we would prioritize carbohydrates is because it's the it's the most readily available source of energy for the body we know that when we're working in the gym in that environment that carbohydrates are our most on-demand source of energy and it's what we need to train and perform we know that performance has a direct correlation between muscle gain and muscle retention so if we compromise performance we compromise our muscle retention and muscle building ability 
So in doing that, we do things to keep our carbohydrates higher. That might mean we bring down protein to a minimal effective dose. That might mean that we bring fats down to a minimal effective dose and sacrifice fats under a minimal effective dose when we need to and when you're really, really digging. Will it compromise you hormonally? Maybe. Are you compromised hormonally anyway in a competition prep? Yes. Regardless of, 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 how, of everything else, the stress the 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 micro stresses the the body fat levels you're hormonally compromised anyway any of you guys that know george osborne out there go talk to him go he's on a lot of calories he's on more calories than i am he's 140 pounds he's leaner than i am he's eating more food than i am i guarantee you he feels as bad if not worse than i do it's all relative body like if you've got shredded glutes you do not feel great like that is just the way it is i urge you to go ask him that and i'm sure he'll confirm that for you um so that's something to consider is that you're going to be compromised anyway so you might as well prioritize something that's going to help you retain that muscle you know we're not here to compete for health we're not trying to be the healthiest person on stage we're trying to be the most shredded so you got to you got to make that distinguish between um, the sacrifice to health and 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 and, and that not, and that not. So, yeah, I think that I think that sums up. What do I think needs to change most in the industry? Uh, it's very very difficult. It, it, what I'm finding difficult at the moment is to see where the line of the industry stops because we've got this 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 prevalence of of fitness in quotation marks YouTubers who don't really do fitness anymore. It's just kind of how they started and the boom was there. Um, for example, Rob Lipset. used to be Rob Lipset Fitness. He doesn't really do fitness. He like he trains and he eats like nice foods and he goes on nice holidays. You know, he basically just lives a nice lifestyle. He doesn't live fitness. Like he doesn't help people get fitter as such, you know. Uh, actually, that's, that's a bit harsh. Rob Lipset definitely has, 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 has a pretty decent impact but matt does fitness matt does not do fitness matt does <laughs> matt does food at the moment you know um it's, it's very very difficult to to look at the state of the fitness industry right now and say that we're getting a lot of value out of it i think it's a little bit different for me to see because i'm like the people i follow the people i have on my instagram the people i have on my youtube are very good and they're good YouTubers and they're good Instagrammers and they have amazing information and, and, and that's what I'm into is that great information, great value. Um, and it's difficult because you look at the big names in the industry and and it blurs my line of do I actually just keep going with giving out all this information because you look at the fit top of the fitness industry, Guzman, uh, Brandon Harding, is there really anyone else at the top of the industry? Jeff Nippard, actually, to be fair. But Jeff Nippard's really good. But, I mean, those two guys, like, realistically speaking, what what fitness advice do you get from Guzman anymore? You you don't. So, I, I don't... I, I think he actually did the smart thing in removing himself from the fitness industry. He doesn't... He calls himself more lifestyle now. Um, Brandon, great physique. He is a really, really nice guy. Um when he wants to be um but like you know i've talked to him for years and and we've been acquainted as friends for years we still message each other every now and again but really like is there much fitness there other than like i'm doing this and this and i'm doing that and i'm doing that there's no like we don't he didn't break down recovery and volume and sleep and the things that i would say that i go into but I don't get rewarded for that necessarily. Like I don't get the followers that these guys get. I don't know what I'm missing. I don't know whether I'm missing. I don't know what it is. The per I feel like I got the personality. I feel like I'm pretty personable. Um, I don't know whether I'm missing the clickbait or whatever it is to get me to that. The echelons of YouTube. I've just got to stay persistent with it. Um, but yeah, back to the original question. It's very difficult to see where the actual fitness industry is. And, and I think, in my opinion, I would like to see it move more towards what, what I'm doing. Um, like what Eric Helms and 3DMJ, Revive Stronger, AJ Morris, TM Cycles, Callum are doing. You know, lots of very, very good information backed up by research, backed up by evidence. 
but I want to bring like the the entertainment value because I'm not gonna lie, like I watched a Christian Guzman video, that shit is like a fucking movie. It is unreal. If you can combine that with the knowledge that say like you know Eugene Teo, um, John Meadows, if you could com- if you could combine the information and the the quality of research and studies done from those guys with the entertainment value that Guzman can do and Brandon can do. I think you'd be onto a winner and that's essentially what I'm trying to do and I think that's what TM Cycles is doing very very well at the moment and I think that's why he's really really benefiting and my problem is the videography side I'm good at making a lot of information in the videos and stuff but I need to make it fucking look pretty and look clean as fuck and all that kind of stuff and it will come it will come and I'm investing a lot of money into this you know I've been paying for videographers to film my workouts um ideally the goal is to get it everywhere but yeah it's difficult it's difficult so i would like to see the industry move that way um i think the industry is 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 still caught up in a lot of the bullshit and i think fuck me there's nine hundred thousand people following christian guzman and they don't even get told like how to manage stress and stuff like that you know i don't know it's a, it's a very very blurred and difficult line to consider at the moment um but a very very thought-provoking question moving on how do I make my money so there's one thing that I've been doing in the last few months it's been getting hold of my fucking money I have um not been the best with my money I am in my I am if I see it in my bank it's gonna go kind of guy and I've always have been and as as much as I love my parents, it's probably because of them, because they are the same. <laughs> we lived in like, there's a th- imagine there's three of us. Both my parents had good jobs. It was just me. We used to go on holiday all the time. I never really got taught the value of money that well. Sorry, mom. Um, but 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 that's different in the in, in the latter part of my lives as I've as I've talked to my mum more and realised about saving and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, it's something that I've been really been focusing on is 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 putting fingers in pies and, and and spreading my bets. But right now, the ways that I make money are I'd say the biggest the biggest the biggest chunk of my money comes from my sponsors and coaching. Um, so I have you know fifty plus clients that I, that I attend to every single week. Um, I have two sponsors, three sponsors. <laughs> don't forget them um i have insight supplements who will pay me a percentage on people using my code i have medichecks who pay me a percentage on people using my code and i have love hemp uk who also pay me a percentage of those who use my code um i also do a little bit of crypto trading on the side um i also sell plans i also get money from advertising on youtube um, I also get the odd paid promotion from people like Legend London, so they'll pay me, you know, X amount of money, send me over some free products, and then I'll make a post about them, um, and I get the odd thing like that, and then I'll get like a, a load of free stuff sent to me every now and again. For example, Bear Grips, the uh, the company who do apparel like wrist wraps and Versa Grips, they just sent me their full range, you know, so I'll get stuff like that as well. So you can see like it's, it's not a widespread amount of different fingers and pies at the moment. Um, but it will be. Oh, actually, I guess I could add in that I've got ISAs. So I've got a few ISAs on the go. I've got a help to buy ISA where they match me 12 grand. So if I put 12 grand in, they'll pay me 12 grand back out for a first time buy. Um, I've got bonds. I'm going to start paying into bonds, which will give me, you know, things back later on in life. So I'm putting things in progress right now at 26 years old that are going to set, set me up for life when I'm 40 and set me up for retirement when I'm 40. So... Um, I've got a lot of other things, you know, I, I still, I sell apparel as well. I just sold a load of hoodies. Um, there's more to come along, along that lines, but I'm very much in the process of building my brand and building me as a following. I think me as someone who's, who's closing in on 26, 27,000 YouTube subscribers, 26, 27,000 Instagram subscribers. I have a pretty decent influence, but I need more. And I think there's much more to get out there. And then, uh, I can look to expand my my monetary income you know like it's no good for me to buy just consistently buy hoodies and try sell those because they're they're, they're more just to support my brand rather than these are some sick ass hoodies 
you know, I can move into maybe a website, a membership site. There's there's so many different avenues that I can take. It's just about getting that demand for it. And I think that's the process that I'm in right now. Um, yeah. Mon- money management per month. So th- this kind of links in, um, how, do, how do I manage my money? So I've just got an accountant. Um, I've got QuickBooks, which will track every single bit of income and outcome that I have per month. And then I have my total income that I get per month. A twenty percent of that, depend, depend, depends how much I earn. If I earn over the threshold, I'll put 30, you know twenty thirty for up to forty percent of that earned money. I'll just put straight into a tax bank, which is the most painful process of my life, knowing that I can't touch that money. The rest of the money I just leave. Um, I just leave in in the bank. Um, and then any money that I, I pay myself, I'll go into my personal account. Um, I'll then split that personal account money up into ICEs, up into things to save. And then I'll give myself a couple hundred quid a month that, I, that I'll spend on myself. You know, maybe I'll buy a nice hoodie or a pair of shoes or something. Because I work hard. Like, I work really fucking hard. You know, I, I was saying to someone the other day, when I break down my dad's, yeah, okay, people may not see cardio and training as work, but for me, that's my job. Like that is like, I have to work hard at those things to be able to, you know, like when I'm going in to do cardio and I've got my camera with me, I'm filming three different angles on the same cardio machine. So I'm getting on it, I'm filming, I'm getting off it, I'm changing the angle, you know, so it's stuff that I'm doing consciously all the time to do it. And I say genuinely, I work from like 8 a.m. to about 8 p.m. every day. Um, six, six days a week. I tend to have Saturdays off if I can. Um, but two of that, two of those hours would be training. One of those hours would be cardio and steps. Um, so you could, you know, nine hour complete work days with three hours of, of training and stuff in and that in there. Um, but in that, you know, you, you'd be Instagram, YouTube, or, uh, client work, emails, all that kind of stuff will be there. So yeah, uh, I'm not the best money management right now. I'm in the process of doing it, but there will be a point when I know every single pound that's coming in and out of my out of my account, and that is my goal uh, for for July. By the end of July, is to to have some have a system set up that I know every single pound that's going where, and I account for every single pound, and I have no money sitting and waiting and doing nothing. I always have money that's either in. Uh, a savings account that's getting me a percent a year or an ISA that's getting me three or four percent a year or a bond that's getting me five percent a year and I'm, and I'm just focusing on building that for the long term and I think I think I'll thank myself so much when I get older so if you're not looking into money management I suggest you do oh, that's hit the spot GDAs in the off season on season when and why so glucose disposal agents they're essentially essentially just tablets that have like uh, different herbs and extracts in it to kind of help blood glucose regulation. Now we know that high blood glucose regulation over the year, over the, over the, over your life um, can lead to an increased risk of all cause mortality. Um, so generally speaking, it, it makes sense for us to try and keep that down and, and, to be honest, most of the time you're all fine. We talk about giving a pancreas a break from insulin, but it's its job. It's the pancreas's job to release insulin. It happens in this in the middle of the night when you're asleep. Like it's it's a normal function for it to fluctuate. So, in trying to keep that low the entire time is not physically possible, but it's a good idea. So, when you're pushing up into an off season. And you're, you know, five, six hundred carbs deep, uh, and you and you notice your blood glucose maybe start to your blood glucose levels start to creep up because um, we have like an ideal range where you'd want to be in. We can really start to act on that and, and implement some GDAs. Mostly, they're they're based off berberine, and we know that berberine has a great um, ability to bring down blood glucose. So you would have that either intra intra meal, post meal, pre pre meal, either or. It would it would help bring. Um, blood sugar down um, and it can help I, I personally if you I would personally implement some some glucose reducing techniques first like sleeping better first and foremost is which would be your best glucose glucose disposal agent will be sleeping better um, training fucking hard will be another one because there's if there's one thing that I've noticed from tracking my um, my blood glucose is that post-workout it's at its lowest um, so you know a good fucking session will really really lead to lower blood glucose levels 
Um, but yeah, you, you can bring it in an off season. I would just make sure you're doing it very, very high into the off season. Um, just use it as a tool as you would in a cut, you know, you wouldn't come, you wouldn't bring in all, all your skinny cow's horses in week one in a cut, you know, the same way you wouldn't bring out your, uh, digestive enzymes, probiotics and, and all that kind of stuff in, in an off season. So you've got to think about it like that. Um, but they're definitely not essential. If you're digesting and assimilating carbohydrates well, your blood glucose is constantly in a good position, you're all good. You're all good. Shocking the muscle. Someone asked me about shocking the muscle, why it's not a thing. Uh, because muscles do not recognize being shocked. Your brain does. <laughs> um, we know that to grow a muscle, you need to overload training volume and stimulus and damage. You need to increase the amount of damage delivered to that body part we know that if you are constantly changing the damage stimulus or changing the volume you have no way to track the amount of damage being done yes you can go in and just say i'm going to smash it till the end but what happens if you smashed it to the end you absolutely wrecked and you did 15 reps less than last last week you did less volume than me therefore you're going to have you're going to cause less muscular damage so in fact tracking things tracking your workouts and tracking your progress allows you to consciously deliver more damage and more <coughs> hypertrophic stimulus to that muscle so you know if you come in and you do your 100 kilo bench press and next week you come in and think i want to do incline next you've delivered a different amount of stimulus to your pec because of the different angle because of the lighter or heavier weight because of the different reps so keeping things the same you can track the amount of volume and damage you are delivering to a muscle do this for a long period of time allow your muscle to adapt allow it to overload and then allow it to slowly adapt to it too much and then you deload and then you could change so that is basically shocking the muscle de debunked you are not shocking the muscle you are just inefficiently gaining muscle you can much more efficiently gain muscle by tracking things tips to grow a fitness page uh, know about fitness be relevant talk about the things that we're talking about you know you'll see cbd float around loads talk about cbd you talk about recovery float around talk about recovery uh, look the part Make your page look the part. Make sure that your intro and your bio is the part. Make sure your captions are sorted and your hashtags are good. Make sure you're not taking shitty photos in poor light and just uploading them for the sake of it. The more aesthetic the photo, the more aesthetic the page, the more appealing it is for people to pick on. Think about branding. Think about the same fonts you use on your story. Think about a theme that you want to use. For example, me, uh, black and orange. That's my thing at the moment. Um, or anything in orange, obviously, because all my logos are in orange. All of my writing I do is generally in orange because of my ginger hair. Um, and thinking about that consistent branding across the board um, to really just make people think. And, and it really, really works. And then just be fucking consistent. Uh, post at the right times. Look at the insights on your Instagram. Download vidIQ for YouTube. Find the right times to post. Find what's trending. Find which hashtags work, which which tags for your channel work. And just be relentless with it and, and don't stop because I've been doing this for like five years and I'm only on 26,000 followers, you know? Like that's not a lot. It's not a lot. Look at Rob Lipset. Look at Brandon. Look at Mo Samuels. Look at Mike Diamonds. They've all got hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, so we're not done yet. We're just trying to do it right. Managing pushing too far on a prep. So how to know when you're pushing too far. Um, it, this is a very, very difficult question. And a lot of this is going to come either in the experience that your coach has or the experience that you have. If you've been stage lean before, and I mean real stage lean, you're going to know how far you need to push. Um, but if you've not, just keep pushing. Um, I, I, in my opinion, because most people lack on conditioning. So it's difficult, it's difficult because uh, most natural people that I talk to, they're like, oh, I'm losing muscle now, I'm losing muscle now. Well, guess fucking what? You have to. You have to lose muscle in a deficit because if you're not, then you're not in a deficit. You know, like it's not that, it, it's a fight to keep the muscle and you can keep as much muscle as you physically can. And with clever programming and nutritional, yes, you can keep as much muscle as you can. But essentially it's going to come to a point where you're going to have to sacrifice something, whether that's performance, whether that's cardio, whether that's food, something's going to have to go up or down um, and you're going to have to keep pushing. So 
I think I think the best thing that you can do if you're on your own and you and you don't know whether you should keep pushing or not is ask someone else. Ask ask me, you know, ask one of the online coaches. Um, most of them are very very nice people and will respond. So ask one of the online coaches. Ask ask me. Um, see how far it is. Look at your competitors. See what the winner of the category look like. Look like. Compare yourself. Do you still have fat to lose? Keep going. Um, and that's the best advice I think I could offer. Um, but if you're but if you're being coached or what and whatnot, then your coach should should be should know when to pull back and put and pull and push forward. Um, what split for men's physique? So I get a lot of men's physique guys. Obviously, being into men's physique myself, I get a lot of men's physique guys over bodybuilders. Um, so I kind of know how to program. And, and generally speaking, when we look at that men's physique, physique, what do we look for? We look for big shoulders bigger arms so we can fill that side pose out um, and then bigger lats and that's really it it's just like small waist big shoulders you know and then fill in the gaps so what I do most of the time um, it would be stick so I like to stick people on different splits because most of the time everyone does push pull legs um, so I, I have what I have a split which I put people on sometimes which is like a, a hamstring delts arms quads quads and chest and then it will be like, basically it's delts and arms every other training session. So every third day you do delts and arms um, and you mix hamstrings and, and quads up with those. Um, or something as simple as like push-pull legs, shoulders, arms, legs, you know, or push-pull, shoulders, arms, legs, um, and then repeat. Because just having that little bit more volume on your shoulders and arms just allows those to get a slightly more hypertrophic response and fill, fill those out. Um, in order for you to just drive more volume to that area. Like we said earlier, the more volume, the more damage you can drive to an area, the more it's going to progress. So um, while being able to maintain the recovery side of it. So push-pull, shoulders, arms, anything that's going to focus on the upper body a little bit more, you can bring down your 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 leg workouts to one or even two sessions per week and think about upper body three times a week you know if you're earlier on in your career you could even do upper lower upper lower upper you know and have two rests a week so you've got three uppers um and just dictate a little bit more of your training volume to that those those men's physique areas you've got to think like sculpt the body think what arnie said you know you you we're an we're a painting you got to put the you got to put the muscle where you want it so Think about where you want to split. If, if you're a bodybuilder and you've got weak glutes and hams, guess what? You need to train more than everything else. Glutes and hams. So think about the split and go from there. Clem Buterol in the great Rich Piana's voice. Clem Buterol and muscle cramps. So Clem Buterol is a beta adrenergic agonist. It essentially connects to beta 2 cells um, and, it, and it will improve lipolysis which essentially is fat burn. It will raise your basal metabolic rate. It will raise your your resting heart rate. Um, and it is an illegal fat burner. It is a, it's considered like a, a very, very mild anabolic when it's been when it's used in an extended period of time. Um, but it is illegal in natural bodybuilding and it is a banned substance. Um, it's something that I've been using on and off this prep just to kind of bring body fat down. Um, and it has associations with muscle cramps because it depletes potassium, sodium, and taurine quite heavily. So in knowing that, we know there's a few things that we can do. And, and number one is going to be supplement taurine. Um, I have about 10 grams of taurine a day. I split that five grams after my first dose of Clen and five grams after my second dose of Clen. Um, I will also add in potassium and sodium regularly. I use low salts, which is like 66% less sodium, 66% more potassium and then just Celtic sea salt. And I'll literally do like three, four grinds of Celtic sea salt, three, four um, grinds of the low salt. And then you've got, you've got sodium, potassium, and you supplement your taurine. Taurine helps facilitate um, potassium and sodium uptake. You get less muscle cramps. So stay hydrated. Make sure you're getting your electrolytes in. You can also use something called 40,000 volts, which is like a, a, an electrolyte hydration supplement, which can help. Uh, bring everything together and reduce those muscle cramps. But I've had zero cramps. I've had zero cramps and I've been up to about 80, 80, 80 micrograms, which is, it's not, it's not crazy high, but it's like a middle ground and I've had zero cramps, no, 
nothing like that because I've just been taking care of myself and, and understanding understanding the interactions that Clemputer has within the system. I've put things in place to stop those interactions or to stop the depletion through those interactions. So know what you're taking, know why you're taking it and know how to counteract and mitigate any of the side effects. Don't go in blind. Don't just take Clem because your mate tells you this is going to get you shredded because that's stupid. Um, we, uh, side note, Clem will um, possibly increase your chances of ventricular fibrillation, heart attack, high blood pressure. It can kill you, so be careful. Um, spacing steps out, a uh, out across the day versus all at once. Now, I'm a big fan of doing it um, across the day. The main reason is just going to be from a digestion standpoint. Uh, we know that actually walking after a meal can reduce the glycemic variability of that meal. It can also improve digestion. We have a lot of muscles that come up through our pelvic bone that wrap around our stomach intestines that when walking stimulate and help push through this food down through the system. Um, as we know, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a passive system. It, it isn't just constantly pushing food forward. It, it has to work its way through. And walking can really, really help with that. Um, there's also some cool studies into reducing glycemic variability, which is essentially how much your blood sugar is bouncing when you're taking a walk post-meal. Post so it's, you know, all those old school Italians who live for fucking ever and they take their nice walk after a, after a meal. There's method to that. It helps digestion, improves um, assimilation of food and, and, and reduces glycemic index, which is why I would be more more apparent to do that. Um, another thing is, is that because I'm on prep, if I'm if I go out and do six thousand steps, like by the end of that six thousand, I'm wrecked. Like I'm tired because it's a lot of output in one go. So instead, doing three thousand, three thousand, three thousand, three thousand with regular food intervals allows me to kind of fuel myself for those steps. Uh, and to consciously move forward and be able to put effort into those steps, you know, if you took six thousand steps, or if you took ten thousand steps and you did it all in one go, I can guarantee you that those last two or three thousand steps would be slower than if you were to separate them. Um, so actually, your output might drop because you end up your performance drops off, you know. And it's the same thing with with talking about performance earlier and trying to maintain that. It's the same thing with steps. Um, when to carb up when, are you ever uh, not lean enough to carb up yes yes if you are not stage lean and you've got a competition just keep dieting into the competition there is definitely a position where you don't need to carb up um, you can mildly carb up in most situations you know but it's, it's such a general question in terms of like when can I carb up because it depends on your goals, depends on how much body fat you've got, depends how much you've lost, depends how many carbs you're eating now. If I've got someone who's eating 50 grams of carbs every single day, I give them 300 grams of carbs, they're going to blow. If I've got someone who's eating 300 grams of carbs a day, like for example, our George Osborne example earlier, who's probably, I think he's eating over 350 or something with regular 500 days, you could carb him up on like six, 700 and he would fill out and maybe even run flat because he's just a motor and his metabolism is firing and everything is like clockwork. So you've got to consider a lot of the variables that are in place before you dictate how much to carb up and when or if you can carb up. But if you're lean enough and you're competing on like a Saturday, my, my preferred method is to just reverse someone slowly into that peak week while reversing down in activity so you reduce inflammation but fill up at the same time um, and then just find a look that you want and then just like feed until then and just stay right there um, or you can do like a super compensation but I, I tend to stay away from that as well um, so you need to be in a in a con in a place of consciousness as to, as to where you are um, in terms of choosing a carb up Tracking trace macros, so this is something that I've not done for a very, very long time, but I'm now starting to do um, just because um, no real reason other than to, to give myself a little bit more flexibility in this dieting phase. Um, I was becoming very food focused, you know, I was getting to the point where I was like, I can't have this this 150 grams of beef instead of chicken because it's this, it's this, and you know, it's stupid. So I was, I was not rationalizing myself properly, so in turn 
counting my trace macros has helped. The only trace macros I would not count would be protein because when we look at protein, we know that we need a full amino acid complex. When we look at a full amino or complete amino acid complex, this largely comes from animal proteins. For example, the protein that you find in rice is incomplete. You'll miss some of the essential amino acids, which are key for muscle protein synthesis, the main one being leucine. So general rule of thumb for my clients and for people is to get about 2 to 2.5 grams of protein at regular servings, sorry, per kilogram of body weight at regular servings throughout the day, roughly about 20 to 30 grams minimum. So you can go up to 50, 60 so that you can ensure you get at least two or three grams of leucine, which is like an essential amino acid, along with the full complete protein. So actually, if I've got a protein goal of, of, of say, 200, um, I'm getting 200 grams from complete sources of, of highly bioavailable protein, which generally speaking is animal protein. Um, and I'm not compromising that with, with incomplete protein, and I'm actually disregarding incomplete protein. Um, I, I still count those calories, but I'm disregarding the complete protein. As for trace carbs and fats, um, I, I am counting them. I'm just making sure that I get good solid sources of essential fatty acids. The main reasoning or one of the main reasons why I wasn't tracking macros as such is because if, let's say I had random example, let's just say I had, you know, a couple bagels, Cut, uh, 100 grams of oats, whatever, whatever. In 100 grams of oats, there's seven grams of fat. In in, in a couple of bagels, there's there's another eight grams of fat. So if I do another two meals like that and add seven, 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 that's you know that's that's nearly 38 grams of fat that I've just accumulated through trace macros without having any direct source of fat. For example, olive oil, olives, coconut oil, avocados, dark chocolate almond butter, these things that also have a great mineral and macro and micronutrient profile, as well as omegas, essential fatty acids. Um, we're missing out on those by just tracking the trace macros of fat and trace macros of fat are in fucking everything, as you guys will find out, you know, all of these nice little diet foods, they all have fat to bind it in there and to make it creamier. You look at a grenade bar, it has 10 grams of fat, but how much of that 10 grams of fat is coming from an essential, essential fatty acid source? So I really try and get an essential fatty acid source um, for the majority of my allocated fat maybe if I've got 40 grams of fat, I'm trying to get 30 from essential fatty acids and then I can accumulate one or two here and there. Um, but that was a big reason as to why I track trace macros to maximize my micronutrition. Carbohydrates are a little bit less important. So my advice to you would be to track everything, but just be conscious of where you're getting those sources from. Don't get lost in trace macros of fat and, and ruining your entire day's fat for just some trace macros in like a protein bar or something, you know, because that, that fat in protein bar is not going to be as beneficial as a pro, as as the fat from an essential fatty acid, you know, or an essential fatty acid source like salmon or something. So that was where where that interaction comes into play. So be conscious of that. Um, and and it's just food for thought because not, 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 not many people think about that kind of stuff. They just think as macros as a whole, but you've got to think about the, the micronutrition as well. Uh, what is your use of caffeine in nootropics? So this prep has been a stark difference in abuse in caffeine. I literally last year, I used to wake up, have a double coffee, come back home, have a coffee before breakfast, uh, have another meal, have a huge pre-workout before I trained, train till like 6, 7 p.m. You know, And that's like half a gram of caffeine in a day. Now, I literally have my caffeine when I need it. So, for example, on a podcast day, I will have 200 milligrams of caffeine, which a podcast day is always a rest day, just so I can, like, a podcast takes quite a lot out of me mentally in terms of, like, talking for an hour or whatever. Um, so having 200 milligrams of caffeine helps keep, helps keep me focused. I'll get that in the form of a 3D energy drink, um, and that'll be it for the entire day. It's either a 3D energy drink or a coffee. And, and that is it for the entire of my rest day. So a maximum of 200 milligrams on a rest day. Um, sometimes I don't have anything if I've got no podcast scheduled. Um, and then on a training day, I will have uh, a coffee, which is about 50 milligrams, 75 milligrams of, of, of caffeine right before I train. Uh, no, sorry, right before I do cardio, um, just to help with my heart rate, heart, help with performance a little bit, help with energy. Um, and then I will have a pre-workout and that'll be it. 
so only two caffeine days and, and my nootropics will be with my caffeine as well but I'm not taking any any uh, appetite suppressants like I did last year I'm not taking any anything to help me concentrate through work I'm just fueling myself better with better micronutrition better macronutrition and just consciously fueling myself before I need to be cognitively available um, and I cannot tell you the benefits that's had on my parasympathetic nervous system. You hear me talk a lot about the autonomic nervous system. I just put a video about it um, and being able to flip this switch between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic being our fight or flight, you know, adrenaline, noradrenaline, raising low, low stomach acid, low stomach enzymes, and then parasympathetic being the opposite. I've learned how to flip the switch way, way easier um, with consideration to to reducing my caffeine intake and reducing the stimulant intake because essentially as soon as you're away from baseline with, with caffeine and, and all that kind of stuff in terms of heart rate, blood pressure, you, you're going through a stress and you're increasing stress or stressors, your stress response in the body. So you've got to be conscious of that moving forward. Um, yep. I've been way, way better than last year, though. Comparing myself to others, um, other competitors, or just focus on yourself. So I've got a bit of a controversial thing to say. At the end of the day, it depends on your goal. But right now, my goal is to be IFBB Pro, right? So why wouldn't I compare myself to people I'm competing against? Because I've got to beat them. You know what I mean? I've got, I've got to beat them. So why would I not? I, I get the concept between keeping your, and I think the concept of focusing on yourself is more relevant in bodybuilding than anything else because it is an isolator, an isolative sport. Um, it is a delayed gratification sport. So you work for a whole off season, then a whole on season, and then you stand on stage at the end of that rather than like football where you compete week on week. You've got to compete day in, day out. Um, and focus on yourself because you've got to beat yourself every day. So I think it's very much a twofold. You could do both. At the end of the day, it depends on your goals. If your goal is to be Mr. Olympia, why would you not look at what Mr. Olympia looks like right now and see if you can beat him? You know, you have to you have to make that comparison. Um, and you have to make that comparison to the best guys because if you want to compete with the best, you've got to beat the best. Um, but as much as a self-improvement is, is important, I think for the more... Uh, less not motivated not um, the people who don't want to be Mr. Olympia the people who just want to compete for the fun those are the guys who should focus on yourself and those are the guys who should focus on self-improvement every single year and you can get a lot out of both and that's not that doesn't mean that I'm focusing on everyone else it just means that I'm keeping an eye on them and I'm keeping an eye on who's winning shows and I'm keeping an eye on what the judges are looking for. Um, but I'm just doing and bringing the best version of myself and then comparing that self to their self, if that makes sense. Um, assisted prep versus natural prep. What is the difference? If I'm honest, nothing. Both are very hard. Both I'm very hungry. Both I'm very tired. I think the only, I think, I think a, positive I don't want to put this in a positive light but the positive of being um, or using um, anabolic steroids on a prep is that the the flat feeling of you know not being able to get a pump waking up and actually just thinking fuck me I've lost so much muscle or fuck I'm really really small that doesn't come into my head as much. I'm still big. I still feel big. I still get a pump really easy. My muscles are staying fuller. Um, even though that I'm potentially pushing harder. Um, recovery is still pretty good. I don't have as many aches and pains in my knees and stuff because I've been able to control my estrogen. Um, obviously, when you're hormonally compromised as a natural guy, you, you lose your estrogen to a certain extent because you lose your testosterone to a certain extent. So you lose that aromatized ability. So you lose fluid in your joints and stuff. But I feel pretty good touch wood in terms of like pounding the cardio sessions every single day i don't really have too many niggles in my knees ankles hips or anything recovery is pretty good um negatives obviously like i've got a jab every three days uh, sorry every other day monday wednesday friday sorry monday wednesday saturday at the moment so you know and obviously you guys know that i've had the bad pip injections so there are negatives to it as well um, let alone the underlying health problems that are probably happening. You know, I'm, I'm reducing my cholesterol, I'm increasing my blood pressure, I'm 
um, I'm decreasing my health essentially in doing this. Um, but feel wise, I don't feel loads different. I feel just as motivated, just as, as, as functional and or dysfunctional, um, as the natural one. So yeah, there's not too much difference there, which is, which is quite cool to know. I did, I did think it was going to be easier and I did think people who, who were assisted did have it easier in my, my 10 years of natural bodybuilding, but alas, I was wrong. Cruise dosage. Um, so this was asked by someone who is on a TRT dose at the moment and he asked if he goes on a blast with a TRT dose, be a cruise dose. So a cruise dose is, is something that essentially allows your body to reset in uh, in terms of health, bring that bring down liver markers, kidney markers, hemocrit markers, lipid markers um, into a position that would be considered physiological. Generally speaking, for people, this would be like a would put you in the high range in nanomoles. You know, like twenty to thirty nanomoles per liter in terms of testosterone. That would be your your cruise dose. Whether that's 100 milligrams for you or 250 milligrams for you, um, you have to decide. My man TM Cycles, he started at 250 milligrams. He took his test two weeks later. He saw that he was still out of range, so he brought it down to 200. I think now he's bringing it down to 150 so that he can bring himself into a natural range because it, it, it's, it's about bringing yourself into a position where you're not super physiological and working on a super physiological level because we're obviously not meant to do that. So spending times at a physiological level is very very important and it is a uh, a thing that you need to consider throughout i'm going to come on to the final few questions right now i think this has been quite a long one um in your opinion could guzman go uh, men's physique pro with a bit of gear yes i think he could i think he's got the genetics to do it he's got those nutty triceps and, and insertions and shredded legs i think he could do it for sure off-season cardio if so what would your approach be also the benefits Makes sense, dude. Cardiovascular work, you've got to train your heart. Your heart is the most important muscle in your body. If your muscle's not pumping right, you ain't going to be getting blood flow. You're going to get poor erections. You're going to get poor uh, ability to perform in the gym. You're going to gas out. Um, and you're essentially going to reduce your health by not training your heart. So a couple times a week, 30 minutes, double your, heart, double your baseline heart rate. So if you're 60, 65, get up to 120, 130. And just make sure that you uh, you stay there and and spend a good time at a high heart rate for a bit, and you'll you'll you'll, you'll see that your assimilation gets better, your digestion gets better, your hunger gets better, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what is your estimated maintenance calories? I've got no idea. Maintenance changes. A lot of people ask me how mu how much of a deficit should I go in? How much of a surplus should I go in? Well, actually, it it, it doesn't like you cannot work out because maintenance takes into account your daily activity your you know your output so if i walk 2000 steps extra a day that my maintenance changes metabolism is also adaptive so if you consistently eat less and less and less your metabolism down regulates to that if you consistently eat up and up and up your metabolism up regulates to that because that is why we have to be in a constant surplus that is why when i'm eating 5000 calories and 108 kilos i'm still not gaining weight that's my maintenance my maintenance is 5000 calories because i'm maintaining my weight you know and then right now i cannot lose well let's say let's say last week i couldn't lose weight on 2500 calories that was my maintenance weight because metabolism is adaptive and it changes how many refeeds would be normal on a 12 to 20 week prep? It depends on how much body fat you got to lose. If you've got more, none. If you've got, if you get ready early, you could you could have a few before you before you go in, and you could run a mock peak week as well. Um, so yeah. Last question: How long how long does it take to lose tissue when you stop training? Based on two to three years. Um, so there was some pretty good research into this um, about losing muscle, and it, and it and it seems to take about three weeks to actually begin atrophy. And that is with protein in place. So if you remove protein, remove training stimulus, I think between two or three weeks before you start to atrophy. Um, but that's not to say that you couldn't get that back very, very quickly. So I wouldn't worry too much if you if you just got a bit of time off. Um, a bit of time off can do you good, actually. Um, but yeah, guys, that, that was it. Lots and lots of questions gone through. Hope you guys enjoyed the detail that we went through. I hope this wasn't too long for you. Um, I appreciate you for stopping by. Thank you so much. This is Bridging the Gap Podcast. This is Josh Bridgman. Speak to you guys soon. Peace.